Genesis chapter 19. This is the word of the Lord. We are going to complete this 19th chapter this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. And he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And she did not know when she lay down. He did not know when he lay down or when she arose. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine again tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon, Ammon to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our holy God, we ask this morning your grace and your favor as we consider these final verses of this dark and dismal chapter. We pray that in the midst of this darkness, we would see the vast shining light that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And though there may be Uh, dread and disappointment in this chapter. There is not dread and disappointment in Christ. We pray that you would give our minds and understanding and our hearts faith. I decrease now, Lord, that you may increase, be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. In our last study... From the book of Genesis, we took our cue from the Lord Jesus Christ, who both warned and commanded his disciples to remember Lot's wife. We first remembered from last week the spiritual benefits that were afforded to Lot's wife. Lot's wife had been given the benefit of godly examples, Abraham and those who were in the Hebrew uh, camp. She also had been given the spiritual benefit of a godly community, living within a godly community. She had also been given the benefit of hearing the gospel, I'm sure, preached by Abraham. And all of these spiritual benefits, while the rest of the world lived in spiritual darkness, superstition, and sin, She was truly, spiritually benefiting from this community that she was living in. Lot's wife truly was favored with all of these benefits of being exposed to these spiritual graces, if you will. But in spite of all of the spiritual graces that this woman had been exposed to, they did not benefit her soul. In the least. Because she did not receive them by faith. They were uh, nothing but empty rituals to this woman. Now think about this. She may have been moved from time to time by these spiritual benefits. Meaning this. She may have shed tears at the hearing of the gospel. She may have sung with passion the praises to God. She may have even affirmed prayers with an amen. But on the day that it mattered most, she displayed where her true treasure lied. 
And it was in Sodom. Therefore, let us not be deceived by the volume of our singing or the tears that we may shed when we hear a sermon or even the agreement of amen. For what matters most is where does your treasure lie? When it mattered most, she turned back to where her tr- her heart truly was in Sodom. And we are warned that we must not be those who are merely attendees to the means of grace. But we must be those who receive those means of grace by faith. Simply attending, being here, attending to the means of grace will not benefit your souls unless they are received by faith. And the evidence of that faith, obedience. The command was, don't look back. Secondly, we learned last week of Lot's, the sin of Lot's wife, which was she looked back. Don't look back, she looks back. And we learn that Lot's wife looked back at the city of Sodom, sinning against the command of God. It, it revealed a sin that she had been carrying virtually her whole life. Well, some, from the time that she was born until the time that she looked back and became a pillar of salt. And here was her, her, her secret sin. She had been carrying on a secret love affair. With the world. She had been playing the harlot as Israel so often did. She had uh, a mistress named Sodom. And though her body made it outside of Sodom, her heart remained. So then when this woman turned back. She became a pillar of salt. And she becomes, she becomes an eternal monument and reminder from the Lord Jesus Christ that friendship with the world is enmity against God. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. This woman was truly a sodomite through and through. She belonged to Sodom. And she would perish along with Sodom. Thirdly, we learned of Lot's, the punishment of Lot's wife. Uh, With her look backward, she becomes a pillar of salt. If you should Google or YouTube pillar of salt, Sodom, you'll see some amazing pictures that are said to be still to this day. The monument of sin that is Lot's wife. She stands as a warning, a monument, a statue Uh, monuments are those things that stand. They don't stand long, but they stand. We see Washington Monument. We see the the Lincoln uh, Monument Memorial, so on and so forth. They are reminders. She is a reminder of sin. We have monuments to great men. She is a a, a monument to sin. A warning to all those who disobey the command of God. A warning to all of those who are faithless of what their fate shall be. The Lord Jesus Christ to remember, calls us to remember Lot's wife. And what shall we remember? As our confession states in chapter 2, we remember this. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Lot's wife perishes with the wicked of Sodom because she is one of the wicked. Brothers and sisters, seek first the kingdom of God. Be not a friend of this world. For one who is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And now today, with that recap, with the Lord's help, we shall consider the remaining verses again of this dark, dark chapter. And we shall conclude Lot's story this morning. And we will do so with three points. Number one, fear. And paranoia in Zoar. Fear and paranoia in Zoar. If you don't know how to spell paranoia, just put fear. Chapter 19, verse 30. Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains. And his two daughters with him 
for she or for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. And he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. As we come to the end of this sad and again, this, as I said to our narrow road this morning, this is quite possibly one of the darkest chapters I've, I can think of in all of scripture besides the passion week of Christ and his crucifixion. This is got to be one of the darkest. As we come to the end of this dark chapter, we are given curious information. For we are told that Lot went up from Zoar, meaning Lot leaves, is exiting, escaping, if you will, Zoar, and runs to the mountains. Now, this is why this is curious. You may remember that when Lot was escaping from Sodom, he was commanded by the angels, flee to the hills. Remember this? But Lot protested in uh, chapter 19, verse 18. He says, oh, no, my lords. Look at it, please. Now, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You've saved me from Sodom and you have magnified your loving kindness. You've saved me, right? Which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains for disaster will overtake me and I will die there. Now, behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please, let me escape there, in parentheses. Is it not small? It would appear as though Lot believes that the hills will not be able to sustain him. If he runs to the mountains, he'll die. If he were to escape to the hills, he will surely die. Why? Because of lack of resources. How am I going to survive in the mountains? How will I survive in the hills? But, but Zoar, if you were to allow me to go to Zoar, to, to a town like that, though it's small, I, I could survive in Zoar. Zoar has enough resources. I'll make it there. But don't send me to the hills. I will surely die if I go to the hills. It, it was almost as if Lot was saying, the hills, anywhere but the hills, anywhere but the mountains. How will I survive in the mountains? Brothers and sisters, Think of Lot's reasoning. Has not the Lord preserved Lot thus far? Has not the Lord rescued him from brimstone and fire? And yet, shockingly, though the Lord has rescued him from brimstone and fire, Lot has concluded that the God who has mercifully rescued him from sulfur cannot keep him from starvation. The God who has rescued him from fire cannot provide for him, for him bread. Lot, though he be a righteous man, was a man that often wrestled with his faith in the one who has caused all things to be. And to our shame, we are so much like Lot, more than we care to admit, are we not? How so, Pastor Antonio? How often are we guilty of doubting the one who has rescued us from his righteous wrath that he is able to give to us this day our daily bread? Has he not brought us out of the dominion of darkness? Has he not saved us from the clutches of the evil one? Has he not redeemed us from the slave market of sin? And yet we doubt the one who has done all of those things, that the one who has done all of those things is able to give to us this day our daily bread. That he is uh, the one who has rescued us from darkness, brought us into light, is not able to provide shelter for his own. Will the righteous be on the streets begging for bread? The scriptures declare no. I have been young and I have been old, the scriptures say, but I have never seen the righteous begging for bread. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. He has saved you thus far. He's not going to save you thus far to then leave you stranded, starving, homeless in the rain. But I can't pay my bills. Well, maybe you don't need cable. I can't pay my bills. 
maybe you don't necessarily need the internet. I can't pay my bills. We, we are more concerned with our luxuries than the things that we actually need. And when we are confronted with the luxuries, we say, Lord, I need you. Has he not provided thus far? He will provide for his own. And the command, not suggestion from the Lord Jesus Christ is this. Therefore, do not worry. What will we eat saying? What will we drink saying? Uh, what will we wear? For godless Gentiles, they eagerly seek after those things. They worry over those things. But your heavenly father knows what you need. Another verse says he knows what you need before you even ask. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you. Now back to the story. The angels, they, they grant Lot's request. And we are told that the name of the town that Lot escapes to was called Zoar. Zoar. This town was among, was among the cities of the valley that were slated to be destroyed. They, they were in God's sight to be destroyed. But Zoar was spared for Lot's sake. Because the Lord allowed Lot to escape to Zoar, the Lord did not destroy Zoar. Lot reasoned that this town Zoar was going to be able to sustain him. It's small though, isn't it? Isn't that what Lot says? Twice. It's a small town. Is it not small? Why does Lot emphasize the, the size of this town? Why does he appeal to the size of this city in order to convince the angels that it would be acceptable for him to escape to this small town of Zohar? It appears as though Lot was aware that this city, Zohar, was among the cities that were set to be destroyed by the Lord. It was one of the cities that the Lord had set his anger against. But what's the difference between this city and the other cities? It's smaller. It's smaller than the other wicked cities. And because Zoar was smaller, its sins are smaller. It's less wicked. It's still wicked, but it's just a little wicked. It's a little, it's, it's small. Yes, it has its sins, but they are not as vast. They are not as wide. They're not as great as Sodom and Gomorrah's sins. It's just a little sin. It's just a little wicked. Brothers and sisters, we should all quickly learn that there are no small sins. Every sin is great. Giant, massively offensive to God. Every sin is a massive offense against God. We must ask God to give us hatred for every sin, not just the big sins. And, and isn't it amazing what we consider to be the big sins, right? We have our own uh, ideas of what's great and what's not so bad. But in God's eyes, they are all massively offensive to him. We must ask the Lord God with diligence to put to death remaining sin in our lives. All of it. All of it. Let us not reason that they are just small sins. When we knowingly sin against that which God has commanded, let us not be so quick to dismiss it as just a small sin. Isn't it small? We sound more like Lot than we want to admit. And why are they not small? Why are they all massively offensive to God? Because sin has cost the only innocent one his life. It is not small. Last week, Pastor Isaiah gave a, a vivid, I was sitting in the back, vivid example of sin and the heinous uh, offense that it is to God. He said, it is sin, the knife that has cut our Savior's throat. So then each time we sin, think of that sin as that knife. 
that reaches out to strike our Savior. Sent chills up my spine. Lot escapes to Zoar. And then, verse 30, Lot went up from Zoar, stayed in the mountains, and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. Now, how, how ironic is that? Lot first begged the angels to allow him to flee to Zoar so that he might be saved, for Lot feared the hills. And now Lot fears Zoar and is running to the hills in order to be saved. You see the, the irony there? From sisters, now, here's what we should ask when we're reading through the passage. What was he so afraid of? What did Lot see when he came to Zoar that prompted him to say, we have got to get out of here? What did he see? It is possible that Lot has seen in Zoar the very thing that he saw in Sodom. What is that? What do you remember what they were doing in Sodom? What were they doing in Sodom when fire and brimstone fell upon that city? What were they doing? The Lord Jesus Christ tells us what they were doing. They were eating. They were drinking. They were buying. They were selling. They were planting and they were building. They were carrying on with the daily affairs of life. And all of the daily affairs exempt from God. Every single one of them. And all of this, now put this in perspective. And all of this carrying on. After all of the cities of the valley of the Jordan have been destroyed around them. Do you see that? Carrying on with their normal affairs of life when all of the city destruction has happened all around them. Fire, brimstone has fallen upon all of the cities except for them. And Lot has looked around at the inhabitants of Zoar and not a one of them are disturbed. Not a one of them is moved by, by the destruction that has fallen all around him. And let me make this very clear. They were not disturbed enough to repent of their sins. They were apparently not moved enough to repent of their own sin, to turn to God in spite of what they have just seen take place around them. Now, we may sit here in absolute disbelief. How is that possible? Cities have been destroyed all around them and they are not moved. They are not disturbed. How can it be that they have just carried on with the normal affairs of life? Let me ask you a question. Some may recall in the year 2004, there was an earthquake in the Indian Ocean that resulted in a tsunami. Anybody alive in 2004? Let me ask you again. Anybody alive in 2004? Now, let me bring something to your remembrance then. There was an earthquake in the Indian Ocean that caused a tsunami that resulted in 125,000 people dying in Sumatra. What did we do when we heard of that destruction? We did what we just did right now. We said, wow. How about in 2010? There was an earthquake in Haiti. And it killed 300,000 people. You may remember this. What did we do when we heard of the destruction? We did what we just did. We said, mm, what am I going to eat today at 12? It's too bad. You hear about that? That is terrible. What about in 2005 when a hurricane hit Louisiana? A hurricane called Katrina. Killing 1,883 people. What did we all do when we heard of the destruction? We may have offered aid. There may have been some humanitarian efforts. Any of you did that? What did you do? What did I do? 2005, I probably went to school. Probably had class at CSUV. I kept on with normal affairs of my life. What did the people of Zoar do 
when they heard of the destruction that took place around them. They did what we did. They theorized all of the reasons why this so-called natural disaster took place. And then they carried on with the normal affairs of their lives. Many may have shook their fist at God. But none repented in sackcloth and ashes. The moral climate of Zoar was just as spiritually cold as Sodom. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They did not worship God. They did not fear his name. And because of all of this, paranoia is striking Lot. Lot fears that what has happened in Sodom will soon, because the Lord's patience will not endure long, will soon happen to Zoar. It was just a matter of time. Therefore, he flees in fear of God's judgment. He runs, and it is the Lord. Praise God for this in one aspect. It is the Lord who quickens uh, Lot's heart to fear his punishment. He's seen it with his own eyes. Wouldn't you be afraid? Wouldn't you be a little paranoid if you have just escaped uh, what is volcanic ash fire falling down upon city around you? I think we would all be a little bit, a little bit afraid. But isn't it interesting that the man who has lived 20 years amongst the filthy stench and sin of Sodom cannot stand one day in Zoar? A little bit, well, maybe never, maybe never too late, but kind of late in the game, Lot. He runs to the hills. And what does he do? He essentially buries himself in a cave. He and his daughters. There's a sense of paranoia in in the mind of Lot. He begins to to think that there is no place on earth where sin does not prevail. And that the only place where he is safe from the snares of sin and God's wrath is inside of a cave. Lot becomes a living tomb. I'll be safe here. Sin can't reach me here. God's wrath will not be able to fall down on me as it did on Sodom in here. I'll be safe here. The man who has been given the choice of all the land. The man who selfishly chose the most prosperous land. Has now fearfully isolated himself inside of a tomb with his daughters. Lot's paranoia was misinformed though. He believed that that somehow if he isolated himself from the outside world, that sin would in no wise find a foothold in his life. Brothers and sisters, we cannot escape sin in this world. In this world. We can do our best to isolate ourselves and our children, but we live in a fallen, sinful, depraved, polluted Twisted, degenerated world. This is the, 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 the reality of where we are. There is no place to hide. There is no place to hide. We can choose to work for a Christian employer. That will do it. And work among Christian staff members. Still. We will and shall see the ugliness of sin. We can choose to send our children to Christian schools so that they are so-called surrounded by presumably Christian children. And still the ugliness of sin will reveal itself. We can choose to keep them home and educate them within the, the confines of our own homes. We can entomb them. And still, sin will find a foothold. Why? Listen close. Because sin's not out there. Sin's in here. It's not out there. It's in here. We cannot blame the institution of education. We cannot blame the institution of government. We cannot blame poor neighborhoods and lack of resources for the sinfulness of sin. It's not institutions. It's the sinful men within those institutions. 
In this world, there are those who belong to the kingdom of God and there are those who are of the kingdom of darkness and they all, for a time, until the Lord's return, until the consummation of all things, for a time, we are all living in this same world together, this fallen world. There is no place to hide. Though we try our best to insulate ourselves from the world and its influence, we cannot escape it. And we should not. Why? Because we're Christians. We are those who have been called by by Christ out of darkness and into the light. But also to take our light into the darkness and let it shine, not to hide it in caves. Christ said, let your light shine. Do not put a lampshade over it. And Lot has done the opposite. He has taken his light into a cave, into the darkest depths of darkness, thinking that if I'm here, I will not be touched by sin or the wrath of God. But should he have not have gone out into the world and proclaimed to all this God who has created all things will judge the wicked, turn and be saved. Imagine if the Lord saved you and you said, praise God, I'm saved. I'm going to spend the rest of my life hiding in my room. It's essentially the same result. Lot soon will learn that even though he has hidden himself and his children inside of a cave, sin has found its way in. And there is no place to hide. There is only one refuge, and that is in Christ. Now, let us press on with the rest of Lot's story. Number two, worldliness within the cave. Verse 31 and 36, or through 36, apologize. Then the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drunk, drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. On the following day, the the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Lot escaped from Zoar and in the isolation of his cave. He believes that he is secured from sin and God's wrath. How wrong he would be. For at this point, scriptures begin to shift their focus on the daughters of Lot from Lot to Lot's daughters. As they have escaped their homeland of Sodom. Now left Zoar and are finding themselves alone with their father. They say, first of all, that. Their father is old and that there is not a man on earth to come after us or come in after us after the manner of all the earth. Some have believed this to mean that the women believed that the entire earth has been destroyed, that there are no other men left on the earth, that Lot is the only man left on all the earth. Therefore, in order to preserve humanity, they say these women lay with their father, almost as if they had no other choice. We reject that notion. And here's why. Just two, at least. Where have they just escaped from? Zoar. Think there are any men living in Zoar? We assume yes. We don't know exactly, but we assume yes, there were men living in Zoar. And that these women encountered men. But they were not allowed to marry them. Because they left. Also, these women were not ignorant of their uncle Abraham and the tribe of Hebrews and Hebrew men in Canaan. And so then what is the meaning of their uh, apocalyptic statement? We're the only ones left. All men 
had been destroyed from the earth, not so, but rather they have been cut off from all the men of the earth because they are now living in a cave with their father. And because of the culture of that day, you would not leave your father until you are married off to another man. So they were bound to be with their their father in that culture. They were going to stay with him the remainder of their days. Culturally, they, they, they were, were to be bound. They could have chosen to leave, but they would have broken a cultural uh, moray, a norm. So then he would be the only man that they had access to. But listen to the, the way that Moses phrases their statement. Moses goes to great lengths in a short space within one sentence to reveal and expose the worldliness of these women by zeroing in on their manner of speech in one sentence. Listen to what he said in verse 31. Our father is old, they said. There is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of the earth. Twice in one verse, one sentence, these men are revealing, Moses is revealing their their earthliness. They are worldly. They are worldly women. There is no man on earth to come into us the way that men usually come into women on the earth. Therefore, let us devise an earthly plan. They are of the earth. They are worldly thinkers. They are worldly reasoners. They are uh, reasoning like the world. There's no man to come up with us or come to us. So let's make a plan. And it's not a plan of faith. It's a plan of the earth. After the manner of all men, the way that men reason, they are reasoning in that way. Let's get our father drunk. If we get our father drunk, we can lay with him and then we can preserve our family line and a name for ourselves. The faithless, the earthly plan, these earthly kind of of plans. They, they said, let's intoxicate our father, which is a sin. L- let's get our father uh, drunk so that we may violate him. But in doing these two acts of sin, we can at least preserve ourselves and our family and our father's name. It's almost like they have good intentions that are accomplished by sin. Doesn't that sound familiar? They say, come, let us. It was not too long ago. In this narrative, when there was a people who united for their own praise and for their own glory and their 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 rallying cry as they united was this. Come, let us make build for ourselves a city whose tower will reach to the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad, wiped off of the face of the earth. Who does that sound like? It sounds like the daughters of Lot are echoing the same sentiment of their ancestors at Babel, they say, come, let us make our father drunk so that we may preserve a name for ourselves, that we may continue. They are revealing the same faithlessness as Sarai before she was Sarah, who said, God has made a promise. But in order for that promise to be fulfilled, we've got to accomplish it uh, by means other than faith. Abraham, go sleep with my maidservant that we may preserve our family line. It was a worldly plan. It was a worldly idea. These women, the daughters of Lot, they are fully aware of their wickedness. Their shame may have been cloaked in good intentions, but they understand that in order for this plan to work, what do they, what do they, what do they have to do? We've got to get daddy drunk or this will never work. Dad will never go along with this plan unless he's drunk. They were fully aware that their father would not accept this plan. But they're not under his leadership. Slow down for a second there. They're not under his leadership. Our our children who are under our leadership will not do things that their parents have forbidden. I was with my nephew yesterday in Los Angeles. And 
my brother and I were urging him, spend your money, buy whatever you see, get it, just spend it. I can't. Why not? My mommy said I can't. And his two uncles who are older than him, your mommy, your mommy's not here. She ain't going to. But my mommy said I can't. It's a, a, a young man who was under someone's authority. And these women were not. They were going to do what they were going to do, whether their father approved of that decision or not. Lot has, he's lost all control. He's not leading in the home. And it's no surprise that these women are devising this devious plan. Why? Because they're sodomites. Because they're sodomites. They, they are their mother's daughter. The one who looked back, they are their mother's daughter. And they are the product of their father's lack of leadership. They've escaped the city of Sodom, but just like their mother, their hearts remain there. They are of the kingdom of darkness. And once again, we are reminded that there are, are two seeds, there are two kingdoms that are, that are constantly flowing throughout this entire scripture. That there are the seeds of the serpents and there are the seeds of the woman and they are at war with one another. Within this cave, there are two kingdoms present. There is the seed of the woman and there is the seed of the serpent and they are being opposed. The seed of the woman is being opposed by the seed of the serpent. Lot is of the kingdom of God. And it's important for us to keep that in mind, though it be difficult. It is important for us to keep in mind Lot is of the kingdom of God. His daughters are of the kingdom of darkness. And they are carrying out their plan. They make their father drunk. And then again, they make their father drunk. Twice, Scripture says, Lot does not know. Now, is this meant to exonerate, to excuse his decisions? He's an unwilling, unwitting participant. No, not in the least. But that he has lost all authority. He's lost all headship. He doesn't even know what's taking place. Do you know what's happening in your homes? Do you know what is taking place? Lot had no idea. None whatsoever. He, he doesn't know what his daughters are doing. And in not knowing, he comes to know his daughters in an intimate way. Lot became drunk. Lot became drunk. Is he responsible? Lot became drunk. Did they uh, tie him down and, and shove alcohol down his... Lot became drunk. Not once, but twice. He became so drunk that he was unable to know. It was the sin of drunkenness that led him to the sin of incest. Lot has placed himself in that snare. A snare is, is a trap. We can't get trapped and say, uh, we can't place ourselves in a trap and say, you trapped me. <laughs> Does that make sense? I, I think of a cartoon character and those claws that, cra- that capture uh, those characters by the foot. You can't step in the trap and say, you trapped me. Law trapped himself. Becoming drunk, he has brought himself into this snare. The younger or the older came to him and lay with him. The younger came to him and lay with him. And you would think after he awakes from his drunkenness the first time, he would say, that's not going to happen again. But the very next day, the very next day, It happens all over again. The same process. Drinking until drunk. So drunk you don't even know. And you are caught in your own web of sin. We 
we would think that after all that he has seen in Sodom, after all of the destruction that he has seen, that he would stay within the bounds of moderation. But he overindulges. You would think that the series of events that he saw in Sodom would have shaken him to his core. That he would, uh, you would have think that Lot would would run from every kind of sin. That this event that took place in Sodom would would set him on the straight and narrow. He would be faithful. He would not be shaken. He would run from sin. He he would uh, uh, run from all temptation. And this is often how we think that. In order for us to be more faithful to the Lord, we've got something tragic needs to happen. Maybe if, if someone died in my family, like someone died in, in the Rugnell family, maybe then I'll be set straight. Uh, maybe if I have a near-death experience like Antonio did, then I'll be saved. If some kind of terrible event happened, then I would get serious about God. Or maybe if I hear a really good sermon. You know, one of those ones where they're yelling and slamming the pulpit and spitting all over the place. Maybe that kind of sermon will, will scare me straight, uh, convict me enough that I will repent of all my sins. It's amazing how some people are addicted. Addicted, I say, to those kinds of sermons. They hear them every single day and it's like, have you repented yet? I mean, do you need to hear that one over and over again? That, that same one over and over again? If it's going to cause your soul to be saved, then praise God. The problem is that faithfulness is a product of consistent attendance upon the means of grace. Attending to the means of grace, receiving them by faith is not an accidental fallout of the tragedies of one's life. Does that make sense? Meaning this, when tragedies happen, it doesn't always produce faithfulness. That's not the way it happens. And that's not what we should expect out of our lives. Bring me a tragedy, therefore I'll be faithful. Then I will be faithful. Not the case. Hear the gospel. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ. Then you will be saved. Attend to the means of grace. You will grow in your faith. You'll be sanctified unto the Lord And he will put to death remaining sin. Don't wait for God to knock you over the head. Because sometimes, more often than not, that knock doesn't do anything. We see that, we see Lot escaping From the sins of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But he was not able to run far enough or fast enough. He ran from their sin. But could not run from his own. He's lost all control. All of his senses. Because of his overindulgence and lack of self-control. And we may shake our heads in disgust. And shame at Lot. But if we're completely honest and transparent, we have many indulgences, overindulgences that we must confess. Our overindulgence of eating, our overindulgence of drinking. Our overindulgence of spending, our overindulgence of laziness, our overindulgence even of work. Let us not look at the speck in Lot's eye and forget the log in our own. Remember, you who have trusted in Christ, think about this. When you are sitting at the marriage supper of the Lamb on that final day, it could be possible that you look over to your right or to your left or across the table and see Lot sitting there and saying, hello, brother. (laughs) Hello, sister. And you're going to say, you. (laughs) He's going to say, yeah, you too. I'm surprised too. My dad used to say, when you go to heaven, you're going to be surprised by a few things. Uh, Who's there, who's not, and that you're there. That was a long time ago. 
<clears throat> Noah got drunk and he was violated by his son. And now we see Lot drunk and he's violated by his daughters. There's much more I could say there and I've messed up my notes, but let's go to number three. And finally, hope against all hope. Hope against all hope. This is verse 36 and 38. Row through 38. Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. Their firstborn, uh, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, for he is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Amnon, Ammon, to this day. Now here, the last thing that we read is that Lot gets drunk and two of his children bear two children by this immoral act. Lot's oldest daughter names her son Moab, which means this, from father. Moab meaning from father. And Ben-Ami, Ben-Ami meaning from my kinsmen. Later in scripture, the daughters of Moab would go to the sons of Israel and seduce them. As a result, the Lord God would send a plague and 20,000 Israelites are killed because of this seducing. It is the Moabites who harass the children of Israel until they are freed from Ehud in the book of Judges. It is against the Moabites that the prophets pronounce judgment that they will one day utterly be destroyed by one who is seen yet not near. One who is seen but who is still far off. Numbers 24. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Ammonites would be violent, murderous enemies against Israel and oppose them all the way to the prophet Jeremiah who would attempt to rebuild and would be rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The Ammonites forsook the God of Abraham and worshiped the God of Molech. And one of their practices of the Ammonites was that they would sacrifice their children to the false God Molech. Just like Lot attempted to sacrifice his children to the men of Sodom. They are so much like their father. The offspring that was meant to carry on the godly line becomes the offspring that torments the godly line. Lot's offspring become the enemies of God's people. The children of Israel. Now listen, the children of Israel are hearing this account of Genesis chapter 19. As they are traveling through the wilderness, they are being antagonized by nations who are called Moabites and Ammonites. And as they're reading Genesis, hearing Genesis 19, they are learning of the far reaching effects of sin. Even to the third and fourth generation, scripture says, sin is a deadly poison that touches generations. We have no idea how our sin today will affect those who come after us. Therefore, be on your guard. Be on your guard against sin. Thus, we've come to the end. The end of this chapter. May I ask you a question as we come to the end of this chapter? Where on earth is there hope at the end of this chapter? Is this the final note in Lot's life? Is this the final note to be struck in the lives of Lot's daughters and the children that they would sinfully produce after four weeks of being in chapter 19? Is this the end? If this was the end, it would be, we would be hard pressed to find any source of comfort through these past four weeks. But let us think a little bit deeper about this 19th chapter, shall we? 
This story serves not only as a reminder of the consequences of sin, but it is also a reminder that God will deliver his people from sin. Where is their deliverance? The story ends in darkness. First, we know this. The overall message of Sodom and Gomorrah is clearly judgment of the wicked. But it's not only judgment of the wicked. Because the overall message of Sodom and Gomorrah is equally God's deliverance from his righteous wrath. When we see chapter 19, we must not only think God destroys the wicked. We must also think at the same time, just as equally, God delivers the righteous from his judgment. The Lord God mercifully rescued Lot from brimstone and fire. But this story of God's deliverance is not disconnected from the rest of sacred scripture. It's not isolated from the rest of sacred scripture. When considering God's word, we must also consider the whole of God's plan of redemption as as it is revealed through all of sacred scripture. Now, what cues are we given to remind us of how we should view this passage in light of the whole, the broader scope of scripture? Moses tells us at the end, twice, to this day. He said, one was born Moab, and they are the the ancestors, if you will, of the Moabites to this day. The other is Ben-Ami, and he is the, the ancestor of the Ammonites to this day. What is Moses doing? Moses is inviting the readers, inviting the hearers to think of this narrative and all that has taken place in the days of Lot up until the days that he had been speaking to those who were hearing it. Does that make sense? Meaning, look all the way back and consider all that has happened from there to now. Moses is inviting them, consider the Moabites, consider the Ammonites, consider all their sinful ways, and consider the source of their wickedness. They were born in incest. And brothers and sisters, Moses would would not have the people of Israel forget all they have heard and all they have read before Genesis chapter 19. Meaning this, yes, Moab and Ben-Ami are the offspring of a sinful plot of wicked mothers who, who plotted incest. But they are also the product of original sin. The depravity of the daughters of Lot is first and foremost rooted in Adam. Not in Lot or in their wicked mothers. Don't forget all that we have read up until this point. They have shown that they are not the seed of the woman. And they are finally, in the final analysis, the seed of the serpent. Because God has said in Genesis what? Chapter 3 and verse 15. That there will be enmity between the seeds of the woman and the seeds of the serpent. And it has continued to this day. And just as Moses called the people of that day to consider all that has been recorded to sacred scripture up to that time. So we now, with all of the canon of scripture now completed and closed, we must consider all of scripture in light of this 19th chapter and ending verses. When we read the book of Genesis and beyond, there's a little book nestled between big books. There's a little book nestled between Judges and 1 Samuel. It's so small, four chapters only, that we could thumb right past it if we were not looking carefully for it. It's called the book of Ruth. A story that is set in the book or is set in the times of the book of Judges. So when you read the book of Judges, that book of Ruth is to be inserted during that time period, right? The spiritual climate of the earth was much like the climate in the days of Lot. Uh, every man did what he seemed right, deemed right in his own eyes. And out of this, <clears throat> the story begins with a man from Bethlehem. Of all places. And his name is Elimelech. And he is also from the tribe of Judah. Hmm. He takes his wife and his two sons to the land of 
Moab. Because there was a famine that has struck Bethlehem. This man from Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah, travels to the land of Moab, of all places, the most, one of the most sinful, wicked nations. This man from a righteous tribe, if you will, travels to a wicked tribe, and he settles there. Elimelech's two sons find wives among the Moabites. <clears throat> one of the wives is named Orpah, not Oprah. Orpah. And the other wife is named Ruth. Very quickly, we learn that Elimelech and his two sons die. And Elimelech's wife, Naomi, is left as a widow. And her sons are now dead as well. And so she she encourages Orpah and Ruth, go back to your home. Go and, and stay with your family and in your house. Orpah says, peace out. Ruth says, I will not. I will stay with you. I, she makes a vow to Naomi, forsaking all of the gods of Moab, and declares that the god of Naomi would also be her own god. She says, where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your god, my god. And we don't have time to discuss the wondrous mercy of God in providing for this woman, Ruth, what is known as a kinsman redeemer. One from her own family who would rescue her out of this dismal darkness. And how that one was a king who provides for this Moabite woman. But at the end of only four chapters, we learn this. Ruth, here's how it ends. Ruth becomes the, the mother of Obed who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David, who was the father of the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Ruth becomes David's great-grandmother. And she is the distant mother of the seed of the woman who would eventually and ultimately crush the head of the serpent and the false god of Moab, the Lord Jesus Christ. And from all of this, this all from the despicable act of incest that took place in a cave. Brothers and sisters, there is no sin and no one beyond the reach and mercy of God. Through Jesus Christ, this woman is grafted into the seed of the woman. This woman from Moab. The Lord rescues her. Out of this incestuous line and brings her, grafts her into the very line of the righteous one of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ruth the Moabite is later honored, honored in Matthew chapter 1 when she is named in the genealogy of Christ. There are three other women named, five who are implied in that genealogy. Listen to who they are. Tamar. A woman who was raped by her brother. Rahab, a prostitute. Ruth, a Moabite. Bathsheba, an adulterer. And Mary. Of these five, at least four, you would say, don't, they don't belong in that line. And yet God in his mercy has grafted them righteously by faith, into the seed of the woman. <laughs> These would be the least of those honored in our minds, right? But the wonder and the scandal even of the gospel is that God saves adulterers. God saves prostitutes. God saves those who have uh, been raped, those who are parts of incestuous relationships. This is why we do not throw babies away. This is why we don't ab abort our babies. Because God has wondrous plans for them. The wonder of the gospel is that we who were once enemies of God can be made friends of God by faith in Christ Jesus. 
If we were to read the whole story of Ruth, we would learn what it means to be redeemed, to be bought back, to be restored. Those who were alienated and cut off, restored, redeemed, brought back. And it's a story of Lot too. And it's a story of even one of Lot's ancestors. Christ has triumphed over our most heinous sins. And if we could lay out the laundry list and the worst of all that we have done, lay them out before Christ, he will say this, yes, they are known. And there is not one that he has not died for. He is our kinsman redeemer. He is our rescuer. Even from the depths of our darkest sins. And we come to the end of the story. And even though it is shameful, it is ordered by God that even in the midst of this sin, through this would come the Son of God. Ruth was a child of Lot, but became a child of Abraham by faith. If you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring and you are an heir of the promise God is able to overcome and save the children of Moab, which we all are by nature, by birth. There is no one too far for the arm of the Lord to reach and bring to himself. There is no sin the Lord Jesus Christ cannot overcome by his grace. That's how we end this story. Because we're seeing this story In light of the whole story, Christ has come and he has overcome. To God be the glory. Let us pray.